For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. For new people, I'm Tygen Layton, the guiding Dharma teacher at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate. And I'm very happy to have giving visiting and giving the talk this morning, Hosan Alan Sanaki, who's an old friend and an, and an old friend of Ancient Dragon Zen Gate. Uh, Alan is now the abbot of Berkeley Zen Center. He's always also one of the leading uh, people in uh, responsible, socially responsible Buddhism, not just in the United States, but around the world. His Clearview project uh, it works to help many people in South Asia and elsewhere, so you might Google Clearview Project. Uh, Alan has uh, spoken here many times and, uh, again, is uh, now abbot of Berkeley Zen Center. And uh, thank you very much, Alan. Thank you, Tygen, and good morning, everyone. Uh, I hope it's a lovely day in Chicago. It's a little overcast here. Um, I thought I would start with a, just a non-commercial announcement. Uh, if you are not aware of it, running for the next week, it's already been a week into our, uh, Burma Spring Benefit Film Festival. Uh, and it's, it's an amazing event. Uh, there are 40 films that are streaming and there are nine really interesting uh, panel discussions with, with very prominent people who are activists, people who are journalists, people who are in the, uh, the Burmese uh, government in exile uh, and just incredible commentary about the situation over there. So it's about, the point is to raise understanding about Burma slash Myanmar and also to uh, raise funds that will go to the uh, democracy movement, the civil disobedience movement in inside Burma. And so far, uh, we, have, we have had uh, 4,000 views of of films and we've raised about $35,000 and we have another week to go. So please do check it out. Burma spring benefit film festival. And I probably should have put it in the chat, but I didn't. Okay. Let's just take a break break. Um, just for the moment, find your posture and find your breath. Feel your feet on the ground. And direct your mind in whatever way you do 
to where that ground is. Where are you? Where am I? So my talk this morning, can you hear me okay, by the way? Good. My talk this morning is on the Sangha Jewel, and my mind has been ranging widely about that subject. I'm going to start with something that we've been working on at Berkeley Zen Center. We've, we've, we've had for years a uh, on the website an affirmation of welcome for uh, people who encounter us on the website or people who come and read our bulletin board uh, encouraging a kind of openness on the part of our sangha uh, to include everyone. And lately we've, we've revised and expanded that. I want to start by reading it to you. Just as Shakyamuni welcomed people of all backgrounds to his practice, here at Berkeley Zen Center, our Zazen embraces diversity, available to people of every color, every cultural and ethnic background, class, gender, sexual orientation, age, and physical ability. May all beings practice in safety and equality, realizing our true nature. Walking the path of liberation, we express our intimate connection with all beings. We bow in respect, repentance, and in debt to the Ohlone people's original ancestors of this land. We bow to all those who made the difficult journey from China, Japan, and other nations of Asia to offer us their Buddhist wisdom and practices. We bow to countless generations who are here from time immemorial and from many lands. Their gift to us is life itself. So, that's our new affirmation of welcome. And I think it is, in a sense, definitional of Sangha. I'm going to talk more about the, the origins of Sangha, but just to say that early on, when the first Sangha was forming, and when they had rains retreats every year during the monsoon season, uh, one of the first things that they did was to create what's called a SIMA, S-I-M-A, a, a boundary that designated the space of the monastery or the practice place. And basically you were supposed to stay within that space but it also was a demarcation of a sacred space so what i've been thinking is that 
Sangha, the Sangha Jewel, which is one of the three treasures, which probably you know, the three treasures being Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Buddha as our enlightened nature, Dharma as the body of teachings, and Sangha as the community of practitioners. I think what I'm saying today is that Sangha is related to place. So it recognizes in our affirmation, we recognize the, uh, the people who are living here. We recognize where they come from and we recognize the ancestors who, uh, whose land this was. And one must admit that this land was not freely given to us. It was, it was stolen or at the word in, uh, the term of art seems to be unseated, uh, C E D E D. Uh, so we're in a time of redefining Sangha. Particularly, we're in that time here in the West. I'm not at all clear, although I have, I, I'm not sure I see the same movement in, in Asia, in the countries that I've been. Uh, but we're doing it. And it's been really accelerated by the pandemic. So, you know, we could say, you know, it's while I'm thinking that Sangha is related to place, you don't have a place anymore, right? Uh, this, is, this is your place. Uh, we're lucky we have a place uh, in Berkeley. And we love that place. And we're beginning to re-inhabit it in different ways as we open. But our new place really it our new place brings forth the principles of this affirmation of welcome that I read. Uh because on any given day, uh for Zazen, we we've been we've been growing very strongly. We have we'll have thirty people for morning Zazen, and uh, we had seventy five people for lecture yesterday, and our classes are well attended. And we have a three day session with forty five people uh, that's happening this next weekend. Now, some of those people. There's there are people signing up for Sashin who are in India. Uh, there's people in Colorado. There are people on the East Coast. Uh, 
there are people who tune into Saturday lectures on Germ in Germany. This is our Sangha. Uh, and so we're trying to come to grips with what is this place? And I think I'm sure that you're doing the same thing. And I would gather that you're thinking about also the necessity of having an actual place. Uh, but we're not, we can't go backwards. You know, we, we're not going to eliminate the resources and the Sangha that we've built over this last year and a half because we welcome them all. And having welcomed them, the question then is, what is our responsibility? And I don't know, have you guys been talking about that? Sort of what you're, yeah, I mean, it's, boy, the discussions we're having are, they're very detailed. They're not heated, but, you know, uh, like you, for so many years, we had all of our forms and everything worked out. The Sangha knew what to do. If it was Sashin, people in positions knew exactly what to do. We knew what the schedule was, all of that. Uh, it was little tinkering, but not much. Then we had to throw it all out for the pandemic. And now we have to put together something that's even more complex. So that is part of the process of Sangha, finding ways to manifest Buddha and Dharma and Sangha uh, and not once we've welcomed people in, not to exclude them in the future. So I'm really thinking about Sangha as related to place. And uh, it's interesting. I was listening to a, um, I found a video by Thich Nhat Hanh, a short video on YouTube, uh, which is about Sangha and beloved community. And he, he used that term, beloved community, which he had, he had gotten from Martin Luther King Jr., who had also who had gotten it from some progressive theologians of the uh, late 19th, early 20th century, but developed it, made it, really owned it as his own principle. And for Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, Sangha and beloved community were the same thing. And in this in this video, which is interesting, he discusses actually he recounts several of his meetings with with Dr. King 
which is the first time I've heard him directly speak of that. You, you can find it if you, if you Google Sangha and Beloved Community. But the thing that, that struck me in this talk and the thing that resonates with my own life is he said all of his life, he said, my dream was to be in Sangha. Mm-hmm. And on reflection, I realized that's completely true for me. And I could go back to, uh, I can I can at least trace it as far back as uh, ninth grade. Uh, and what we did to create, we, we didn't have these words, but to create a circle of really closely bonded friends. And I would, you know, those are still my friends. And I'm the people who are my closest friends in ninth grade, the ones that are alive, a few have died, uh, are are still intimate friends. And of course, okay, ninth grade, that was uh, like 58 years ago. So you have accretions of other circles of friends. And one of the things that I, that I love about my life is that a lot of the circles intersect like a Venn diagram and people, people from these different circles know each other uh, to some degree through me, but also independently. Uh, And you see people taking up Buddhist practice. I see people from, from high school or people who are musicians uh, these or people who are activists, these different circles of my life. But all my life, I've been looking for Sangha. One thing I remember really strongly, probably you know that that Tigan and I were involved in the uh, the takeover of buildings at Columbia. University in 1968. Um, what I remember, or what I think I remember, because no, one never knows exactly what is a real memory and what is a constructed memory. Uh, and there may not, well, there's no truth anyway. So what I think I remember is that the day that the first buildings were taken over at Columbia, uh, we had been sitting in the uh, cafeteria, a group of us around a table, uh, batting ideas about, uh, batting around ideas about the visions of community that we wanted to live in, in the future basically intentional communities or collective communities or things like that. And then the next thing that happened was 
we found ourselves actually living in a collective, uh, you know, or a, a commune. I lived in Low Library, so it was the Low Commune, and Tigan was in a different building, but we were enacting with we, we uh, in fits and starts, we were enacting uh, these visions. And that's continued for me through my life. And so now, well, I walked in here to Berkeley Zen Center on Russell Street in 1984. And I immediately felt at home. Uh, and it was a combination of the space and the people. And I've told this story before. It really was the Sangha that I felt at home with. Uh, because my teacher, Sojin Roshi, was in Japan for that month. So I didn't meet him. What I met were the people who were practicing, people like yourselves. Uh, some of whom were practicing, some of whom might have been practicing five or six years, some of them relative newcomers like myself. But I felt instantly and inexplicably at home. And I took that very seriously. I always take that seriously when I feel that way. Uh, because I, or one, doesn't feel, may not feel at home, even in supposedly wonderful places. So when that happens, when you feel that, take it seriously, and then you find you have to work at it. So uh, I felt at home here, and I have been living here for 36 years, which I, I can hardly believe, you know. It's like somehow that's not how I would think about myself, but it's, it's what I've done. Now, I've had the opportunity to practice here daily, to be both with my teacher and with the evolving Sangha, and to ordain, to raise my, to raise our family, to be married and have us both live here and raise our children here. Uh, and that's been the shape of my life. Sangha has really been the shape of my life. So I want to say something just a little historical, so you, uh, not hysterical, historical, so that you can uh, have some proper background. But just to say that the word Sangha is used uh, pretty widely in Indian languages. Uh, and it means something like that which is well bound together. Uh,
it existed already in many of the communities, many communities in, in India uh, before the Buddha's time. But the Buddha uh, developed his own definition and way of practicing it. Uh, and the idea of Sangha is that the community is melded together, it's harmonious, and it's unbreakable. Uh, this does not mean that it is free of conflict. It just means that there's something stronger that binds us together than the conflict which divides us. So in that sense, Sangha is a manifestation of beloved community. In the first days of uh, the Buddha Sangha, uh, it was it was simple. Uh, you know, he would somebody would uh, put themselves forward for uh, to join the Sangha, and he would say. Come bhikkhu, which means mendicant or beggar, and they were in the sangha. Later, uh, the sangha grew, and when other people were empowered to invite people into the sangha, uh, there was more of an ordination process. That the early monks and nuns, the definition of Sangha is a little different than the definition I'm using and you may use. Uh, and this is still uh, the definition that you might find in many of the countries of, Buddha, countries of Asia where Orthodox Buddhism is practiced. The, the Sangha was uh, the community of ordained monks and ordained nuns who were part of a fourfold assembly. Uh, the assembly consisted of monks, nuns, uh, laymen, laywomen. But among the monks, there was the Sangha as such, and there was also the what was called the Arya Sangha, which is, or the Noble Sangha, which was uh, that grouping of people who either had accomplished the task of arhatship, of being free from birth and death in the future, uh, or who were decidedly on the path, and there was a path that was laid out. I'm not going to go into that too much. Uh, but in the West and in modern times, we have this wider view of Sangha as the community of all Buddhist practitioners. So that's, that's one definition. Uh, and all of us belonging to 
that Sangha in our individual places and perhaps a wider Sangha of Buddhist practitioners around the country and around the world. And that's not so unusual in a Mahayana context. And I would say, at least to my way of thinking, I also consider the Maha Sangha, which is the Sangha of all beings, the total interdependence of living beings on this planet. And if you will, uh, might even be insentient beings. But if we go back to what I was saying at the beginning and speaking of Sangha as related to people and place, uh, Sangha, What I would say that I've come to as a principle, which is contradictory to some of the uh, some of the principles that uh, were put forward in my uh, Jewish background. Uh, so I would assert, in the context of a larger Sangha, all people are chosen. And I would also assert that all lands are holy. All people are chosen, all lands are holy. That is, that's my vision of the Mahasangha. But it's important, if all lands are holy, we should know how we got here. We should know who is here already. And we should know who has lived here throughout the ages. That's why we're beginning to look at these ancestral lands uh, in Berkeley. And and it's complicated because, you know, you can name, as we've done, we've named the Ohlone peoples, but that's just a, a kind of rubric for the indigenous people who lived here at one point in time. People have inhabited this land for thousands of years. And they didn't fit any one definition or any one group. And there are lots of ways of of speaking of the indigenous culture that that exists in uh, California uh, or in in this part of California. Uh, And it was very fluid. You know, it wasn't... When we tend to think of Sangha... Just in general, our minds go to 
are formed by our modern reality of nations. And that was not the that was not the definitional reality. And in fact, it's the cause of terrible wars that go from the present. So if you think about Burma, there was no Burma as an entity that we think of it as we think of it today. There was a Burmese ethnic group that lived in a certain area, and there were all these other uh, ethnic groups that that lived and encircled it. And, you know, British colonialism, as colonialism was so good at doing, they waged three wars and conquered all of these territories and glommed them together and stuck the name Burma on them. Uh, and people are still fighting about being classified in that entity with, with understandable. It's understandable. Anyway, the, the last thing I want to say is to speak of briefly of the principles of Sangha. The first one is friendship. It's supporting each other. Uh, sometimes beyond like and dislike. Beyond the bounds of, say, conventional friendship. What Dr. King would say is that this is love. And what I can tell you from my experience, uh, I love the people that I live and practice with. And I don't every second like every individual, if that makes sense. But like is not important. Love is important. Love means accepting you are part of this community, whether I'm in complete agreement with you or not. So it means supporting each other. It means forming that uh, that bundle of sticks that is bound together and becomes very strong, which we call sangha, rather than individual picking out some individual stick and breaking it across your knee. Second principle is practice. And that begins with zazen and its extension into our moment-by-moment activity in life. Uh, you could call that genjo koan in Dogen's terms. So zazen is not, is not strictly just our cross-legged sitting in the zendo. Uh, 
as we evolve, as we settle into the practice, it becomes the mind that flows through our life. The next principle is discipline. And discipline in that sense means living according to the precepts and according to some uh, rules and structures that are both shared and are individual for you. Uh, to me, uh, discipline here implies living by vow rather than living by karma or living by habit. And it's also, uh, it's also training. And it's within that context that we can experience true individuality and true freedom. Rather than getting pulled and pushed around by the forces in our lives, by other people, and so forth. The fifth principle is democracy. From the beginning, uh, the Sangha was characterized as consensual assemblies. There was authority, but to a large extent that authority was, was kind and was based on uh, wisdom and compassion. Uh, and this was likely a model that the Buddha evolved from uh, his early life among the, the Shakya people who were part of a larger uh, Vajian uh, confederation in North India, which all shared uh, these kind of proto-democratic processes. And the final principle uh, that I'll share here, and I'm sure there, there are countless principles, uh, final one is sharing. And that means sharing work, sharing our benefits. It means sharing the, means co-inhabiting the field of blessings. And working to make that really come true, to make beloved community a real thing for our lives, not just some pie in the sky principle. Um,
this field of blessings, which is typically another way of saying Buddha Dharma Sangha, but it points back to the thing I was saying at the beginning that our practice and our community unfold in place. And just to say, we are at a very creative juncture right now because we're having to figure out how to extend that sense of place without it being somehow abstract and disembodied. How do we do that with Sangha? So um, I'm going to stop there. And I think we have some time for questions and answers. And uh, I really look forward to hearing what, what you have to say or ask. And I'll let you, you have probably have some process for doing this. So it's, it's in your hands there. So thank you very much, Alan. Uh, um, uh, David Ray, you can call on people. Uh, I'm hearing an echo. Can you hear me? It may be me. Well, okay. Um, I, I just wanted to say I really appreciated your sharing what's happening at Berkeley Zen Center about uh, reopening and including the Zoom community. As you, as you noted, Ancient Dragon Zen Gate is now completely in an online Zoom community. But I want, some people here know, but some don't. Uh, there's, there is a ancient dragon board committee that is working at uh, trying to uh, figure out how to find a new uh, space for a new larger temple. So that's in process. And we are committed to also finding a way to, when we have that, to include everybody who's here from, I counted at least five people who are not from Chicago, besides you, Alan, one from outside the United States. So uh, this is a creative, challenging time, and we're working on it, and we will be notifying the whole uh, Ancient Dragon Sangha about this and uh, sharing uh, perspectives and sharing the process. So I just wanted to say that, that we're working on that. Uh, we may also rent a space for like a one, uh, like a one night a week uh, in-person event uh, before we find, it will take a while to uh, establish, uh, f- find and establish a new physical temple. But anyway, I just wanted to say that we're working on that and that um, everybody who doesn't know about that will be f- hearing details in the near future. So, And I really appreciate your talking about the creativity of Sangha and these principles of Sangha Allen. So uh, we have time. Anyone who has questions, comments, uh, you can raise your hand or you can go to the participant window and click the raise hand function. And we have a couple already. So uh, I think and, and David helped me later, but uh, Dylan is first. Good morning, Hosan. Thank you for your talk. Thank you for being here. Um, my question is about... Uh, 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 how to uh, manage intimacy, I guess, or how to 
differentiate between wrong perception and, and intimacy. Uh, I, uh, I guess the, I had an experience, you know, just a couple of days ago where I really felt like I was kind of knocked back on my butt on what I thought um, I understood about how, uh, how I engage with intimacy. Um, I became really close with somebody very quickly and, uh, and, and I realized, you know, through kind of a painful process that a lot of maybe what I had, um, that, that, that intimacy process became so quick that there was all of these perceptions of who I thought this person was, that it wasn't possible for me to really know at that point. Um, and, uh, and that that was coupling with a fear of, of being known and being rejected or something uh, at the same time. Um, and I asked this question in a Sangha context because uh, having been, you know, I've, I've practiced for a couple of years, you know, uh, and there is this feeling you get where, you know, I can look at a tree or I can, you know, be sitting with someone at a session and you get this feeling like there's this, this deep connection or deep understanding or something that, that, that kind of just arises of itself. Um, and, uh, and, and I guess, um, my question is like, uh, how, how to manage or discipline or, or, or figure out the cleaning wheels of what that intimacy feeling is while also acknowledging that feeling of home. And, uh, you know, cause I, I, I also uh, acknowledge and, and, and also believe what you're saying, but when you feel that sense of home that you trust that and then you work on it. Um, but where, how, how does that engage with, um, uh, you know, when, when I think I'm, I, I think I've misjudged intimacy that I feel like I've, I've had some sort of idea that I understand something or some person better than I really do because of that kind of, uh, immediate feeling, you know, and that's in intimate relationships, but also just being out in nature, out in the world. Like I can't really understand or really fully know that tree in front of me, even though I have that feeling. The central question of Zen that my teacher raised and again and again is how? How do I know this or how do I do this? Um, the kind of merging that you might feel with a tree or someone in Sashin, uh, is made easier because the, uh, the speech of that tree or that person is highly limited. You don't talk in Sashin and the tree doesn't necessarily talk in English. And so you are free to have your projections and the tree is not going to push back much. Uh, whereas a person in a relationship is independent and is going to tell you what they think. I think for me, over the course of the last year, uh, my wife and I have been studying Yogacara philosophy. And 
the at the heart of that is the proposition that all of our ideas are constructions and that they are all filtered through the activity of mind and so the process of determining something that we might say at best approximates truth is with the process of how. And what I didn't say, I really do trust those experiences when I have them. But if I think of each of the experiences where I felt home or I felt something really certain, my own nature is a, characterologically, I'm a doubt type. So I may have that feeling and it may be really strong. And at the same time, what comes up is the question, how? Oh, I feel at home. How do I feel that way? Is, is there an examine the basis and, and really tell myself, yes, this is an important thing to notice and to recognize that I might be mistaken or there might not be a basis. And I can tell you, I'm not going to go into it, but I can tell you many examples of, of things, but I can certainly tell you things that I thought were so and were not. And I could tell you things that were remarkably so, uh, and I don't know how I knew them, but it was an intuitive sense. That intuition doesn't come from the heavens. That intuition comes from the total dynamic working of my life experiences and karma. So you have to check this out with yourself and with beings that you're in relationship to we need to constantly be communicating that that's the best I can do. There's a question is a comment in the chat that I'd like to respond to if that's okay. Uh, uh, This is from Isaac Miller uh, who says, Uh, One thing I would reflect back is that the land each of us inhabits on this continent not only was in the past, but is still native land. And he offers a a map, uh, which I'm going to look at. Uh, But yes, that's completely true. And, you know, on Memorial Day, uh, there was a group that's calling itself Ecosatvas here in uh in berkeley really neat people and we met and we we walked uh down to this site in west berkeley that's a shell mound which is actually now a parking lot and which until last week was was designated to be developed as a uh, massive uh, apartment project. And now the city has put that on hold. And at this shell mound, there were, you know, the whole ritual 
and uh, rituals and ceremonies and observations were led by uh, by native peoples who are still living here. Yes, they are still here. That's right. So I, I misspoke. Asian's hand is up. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hi. All right. Um, my my circumstances are uh, limited today, but um, Hosan, thank you so much for a really thought provoking talk. I have been thinking about this topic a lot, and I'm hoping to give a talk on on this topic, but in a in a in a different way in a couple of weeks, because I've really noticed that there's something that we miss in our Zoom sangha. And um, and I don't really have a, an answer or anything, and, and I'm not even necessarily looking for one, but we don't, in addition to the principles that you mentioned, I think one of them might be something called along the lines of like time. You know, when we're in this Zoom context, we can't really spend the kind of unstructured time with each other that we do in our when we have a physical place. And I'm still trying to think about how we can how we can do that on on zoom you know Tigan talks about sangha as being like rocks in a rock tumbler and we you know tumble around together and that just seems to be something that we can't do in this very curated way so I wondered if you had any thoughts about that yes um something we've been experimenting with uh and um in different forms. You're right. This is, this is in a way that often goes unseen. This is a time boundaried reality, uh, as opposed to sitting down outside, you know, around a table or under a tree or something where, uh, time may be a much, a much smaller element. So what we've been doing is working with that. And I think this began, this began when Sojin died and has continued and evolved. Uh, when Sojin died, we had a series of meetings for several months, every two weeks, where people could just share how they were feeling. They could share memories. They could share feelings. And uh, that was really important in our trans in our in our transition. It was a really important part of the the process of grieving, particularly since um, we've not yet had a funeral, and we will. What we've done, we're just finishing up this week. We're finishing up practice period. Uh, and, uh, during practice, during practice period, we've had, uh, instead of several of our usual Thursday night classes, we have, uh, had counsel and we're teaching counsel as, as a, as an open communication tool not as an instrumentality, you know, not as a problem-solving or investigative 
uh, method, but just as like the, you know, the open, the prompt is often like, uh, what's alive for you right now? And that has been, uh, that's gone really deep. And people were surprised, but people are loving it. And so it's going to continue as an aspect of our practice uh, going forward. We're going to do some more training and offer some more training to to the Sangha more widely, but then we will continue this as a as a form of horizontal open communication. That doesn't solve the problem entirely, but uh, and and I look forward to being able to do counsel in person, but it's worked. It's worked on Zoom. Oh, you're doing this on Zoom. Okay. Yes. Ah. And we have a format worked out, which we're happy to share. I, yes. Is it, can I email you? Yeah. Yeah. Or is it available on the, on the website? Uh, it's not on the website. Okay. I will, I will check in with you. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Maybe we have time for one more set. Okay. Matt's hand is up. Matt. Thank you, Hosan, for your talk on Sangha. I appreciate it. I uh, live in Minneapolis and I practice at Minnesota Zen Meditation Center. So Zoom is a great opportunity for me to hear you speak and then um, occasionally practice with Tigan's group in Chicago. I have two quick observations, and if you want to respond to either of them, that would be great, but you don't have to. Um, When you were talking about Sangha, I remember this, one of the Buddhist lists, I think it's the five heinous crimes, where, you know, the worst kind of crimes are like murdering one's father or mother, killing an arhat, and the last one is creating a schism or disharmony in the Sangha. I mean, that's like right up there with killing your mom and dad. And then the other thing, when you said, you know, all places are holy, I remember that Wendell Berry poem. He said, there's no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. And I thought about both of those during your talk. So thank, thank you. you. That's all I had to say. Thank you. Just to, um, yeah, those are the, the, what you were citing were the five Parajika offenses. Uh, these are the offenses for which the resolution is expulsion from the community. Um Splitting the community, while it is a very, uh, it's a very destructive thing, what I need to look at, and I think we all need to look at, is what my idea of splitting the community is. Um, Because sometimes you go... Sometimes there's something that appears conflictual. Uh, or you have one person who has a very strong opinion that is out of sync with the rest of the community. And it's easy to go to a conclusion that that's splitting the community. And I don't think it is. 
The other side of that is how do you include everybody? This is, you know, this is Suzuki Roshi's teaching. This is Sojin Roshi's teaching. And I saw Sojin Roshi put it into action. And sometimes I disagreed with him. You know, but um, he was very, very reluctant to exclude somebody. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, it's an interesting question. Uh, what was your, your second point was, uh, oh, it was the Wendell Berry poem? Yeah. Um, what is it? It's a quotation, Tigan. I, I tend to translate it in, in one of the, in one of the early koans or texts is like, there's no place in the world to spit or there's no place in the world to piss, you know? So that's the, the flip side of that is there's no place in the world that where it's acceptable for us to, uh, to treat it disrespectfully. And I would say that goes really powerful experience that I had was in the nineties going to the Nevada nuclear test site, uh, which was this native American land, Western Shoshone that had been, you know, claimed by the government where they, they had, uh, I don't know, maybe about a hundred underground nuclear tests. And the desert was pockmarked. It was littered with discarded equipment and wiring and stuff lying all about, coated with years of sand and dust. And in that experience, I recognized it as holy. That this was how the land was now. And until someone was going to make other use of it, we should honor, we should honor it and we should grieve for our uh, disparagement of it. So that's all I would say. So I think I'm going to stop there. And uh, I love meeting with you guys. Uh, and feel free to to write me. And just also want to uh, thank Eve for a very interesting, uh, a very interesting uh, chat uh, in the chat, which uh, is certainly stimulating. So um, that's it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Hassan. Um, so we will do our closing chant, and then there'll be announcements, and then a time for whoever can stay to just uh, gather informally. That's the closest we have on so far for us on Zoom of an unstructured time. So, I regret I'm going to have to leave, though. Yes. That's another meeting here. Well, thank you for coming, Hassan. Thank you for, all, for your... Uh, Guidance on Sangha, very helpful. Thank you. So, uh, David Ray, if you could lead us in. Uh, yes. Chat. Yes, I will.
so first I'm going to mute everyone and then I will share the screen and we'll chant the repentance verse um, three times and then we'll chant the Metta Sutta. And the repentance verse. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma, from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Meta Sutta. This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere without pride, easily contented and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise but not puffed up. And let one not desire great possessions even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother, at the risk of her life, watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world. Standing or walking, sitting or lying down, during all one's waking hours, let one practice the way with gratitude not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, freed from sense appetites. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness we have chanted the Metta Sutta, we dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Maha Prajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma, 
Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu. The perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. To the well-being of all those afflicted with ills, and to peace pervading for peoples of the world, gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, Wisdom beyond wisdom, Mahaprajna Paramita.